Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. Heavenly Father, we come this morning for a blessing. We come here because the noise of the world uh, can sometimes be perplexing sometimes give us anxiety and concern and stress. But here we look to be refreshed, encouraged and inspired, and that our hope may be renewed. So I pray that you will speak through me, give me the words to say, and that your spirit would be present here to translate every word so that each of us leave here with a blessing where we wonder how you prepared a message specifically for us. Please remind us of how much you love us as you share with us from your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we start, I have to share this with you. A good friend of mine sent me this this morning, and I, uh, I could not stop laughing. So it was three tweets in a row. The first one says, we've been in a pandemic for six months. And the federal government gave people $1,200. Next person responded, for just $6 a day, you too can sponsor an American. <laughs> and then Sarah McLaughlin responded, if y'all need a soundtrack for this commercial, let me know. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. This morning, I want to talk to you about fear. When I was growing up, there was a brand of clothing I was obsessed with called No Fear. Anybody remember that brand? Okay. I was just obsessed with that brand. So as I was preparing the message this week, I got some fire in my bones from a testimony. And I've told you I want to try and share these every week. You know, we, last week we launched our series, Love and War. It's a 10-part series. We have a book. If you don't have the book yet, it's in the lobby. This is a story from When and How Did Evil Begin?, and how does it finish? We've got three episodes up, more are coming every day. And someone wrote in, and their question was, when will the remainder of the videos be available? And I said, I'll call this person D again. Different person than last week. Uh, I said, more episodes are coming. We're uploading new episodes every few days until all 10 are live. How did you hear about it? I listen to the weekly podcast on Spotify. I enjoy how the sermons talk about relevant times. I left the church 20 years ago. And I'm about to be baptized. Amen. And then for humor's sake, uh, I wrote him back. I said, hey, just tell me a little more about you. This is awesome. He said, well, I greet you from the communist country of Chicago. <laughs> Uh, and when the series is complete, I'll be sending it to my friends who all think I'm crazy now. Netflix has taught us the value of binge watching, and I'm sure, I'm not sure I can be of much value, but I'd love to help your church. I work in cloud tech solutions. Oh, and I like the purple chair. <laughs> I tell you that because of this. Last week, we talked about some of the strategy, and I'm just so excited that God is doing something here that is getting people's attention. 
And then as we talked about getting people's attention that don't necessarily think they have any use for this book. And that's what gets me very, very excited. So if you haven't seen the uh, first three episodes yet, they're on love and the word spelled out, warstory.com. And stay tuned as we load more there. And they're, they're done in a way where they are something I believe you could share with your friends that don't know anything about this faith. Anybody attest to that? Is that fair to say? All right. Great. All right. Well, let's jump in this morning. Uh, there's something very difficult with uh, preaching in the 21st century and in the year 2020. Uh, I try and do my best to get to know each of you, and there's something I can tell you about everybody in the church today. We have some very widely varying beliefs. From one end of the political spectrum to the other end of the political spectrum, and yet somehow we're all sitting here in a peaceful environment today. But you can imagine that makes the, uh, the role of sharing a message pretty difficult because we literally have words that are now landmines in this country. And so this morning, I am not intentionally trying to sound political at all. If I do, I hope you'll forgive me. I hope if there's anything I say that you think, ah, you'll ask me about it and we can dialogue. That's my request. So as we get going, I want to talk to you about fear, and I want to talk to you about how we manufacture fear. Because there's a strategy about this concept. There's a uh, saying in the news, if it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads. Uh, there's, there's a statement today we all are becoming more and more familiar with, FOMO, fear of missing out. I just, I've got to be in the know. And so Dr. Deborah Serrani from Psychology Today, writes an article, and she describes, news today is fast-paced messaging along with teasers like, and this is where you get it, what you don't know about your water could kill you. And so what do we do? I don't want to die. I got to stick around and find out what I don't know about my water. Or there's been a murder in the city, and they may live next to you. So now you think, wow, crime is everywhere. Everyone's dangerous. Even my neighbors may be dangerous. It's fascinating the difference in opinion, they say, from, I think it's Detroit to Toronto, just based on how people are watching the news and their, their fear levels, stress levels, anxiety levels. I, I want to say something. I believe that fear is destroying the world economy. Fear. For one reason or another, this is literally, we are watching Protestant America die because of one word, fear. When forever, if you think about it, there's, there was only two paths as you woke up each morning. Tomorrow will be worse than today. That's fear. Hope, on the other end of the extreme, says tomorrow will be better than today. So, so on one end, you, you say, hey, we're going to buy that new house because tomorrow we'll make money to pay for that house. The other end says, I'm not going to buy that thing because tomorrow could be worse than today. And this affects a lot of things, and it really ultimately leads to selfishness. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to survive. 
And this is where we get all our consumer confidence and all these different scores, all because of fear. Franklin D. Roosevelt has that famous line, the only thing we have to fear is what? Fear itself. And you contrast this with this idea of hope, and you start to see these are really the only two paths we can choose. And I really believe we have to intentionally choose which path we will walk down each and every day. A few years ago, I went to Haiti, and I landed in Port-au-Prince, drove around a little bit. We were going out to the countryside to see a school and, a, and operations that were starting up. And we drove back, and I was there only for a couple days. And I, there was something that really stuck out to me. The morale of this country is near zero. And I noticed that. I've, I've had the joy to travel a lot around the world. And there's something you see about travel. You, you see the, the bright colors of the clothing. You, you, hear, or you, you smell the smells of the food vendors. And another one, your ears hear the music. Your eyes see the art. I think I saw none of that. And I think it was, tomorrow's going to be worse than today. It could be an earthquake. It could be an attack. It could be murder. I mean, it was like the apocalypse, just burning trash cans. So this idea of fear had gripped a nation. I witnessed it, where don't take any risks, don't do anything, because tomorrow will likely be worse than today. So I feel like I saw this, and I feel like I've been watching that for a few months now. Creativity waning. We, we see sports stadiums empty. You start to realize, wow, was it the sport people watched, or was it the environment people wanted to be a part of? And it's like, well, why, why aren't these things, why don't they feel the same? Have we become a nation of fear? You know, we lead the world in two things, two categories, definitively. Incarcerations and military spending. And if you just looked at those two things, you would say, that is an agenda motivated by fear. And so what does this do to us? The University of Minnesota did a study to really see the effects fear has on us. And here's a few. Fear basically puts you into one of two camps. Fight or flight. You might know some people in one of these camps. Fight is we get angry, riled up. I can't believe you posted that on social media. Or the other side, the flight is we isolate and we get depressed. And this is the danger of falling into the camp of fear. Our bodies start to shut down functions that are deemed essential for survival, like digestion, we see an increase in heart rate, hormones, the immune system's weakened. Just by being afraid, your immune system is dropping. Cardiovascular damage, ulcers, irritable bowel syndrome, decreased fertility, accelerated aging, memory impairment, increase in chronic anxiety due to damage of the hippocampus in the brain. Memories start to become scary even though they weren't in reality. Our emotional intelligence lowers. We become more impulsive. We're emotionally driven rather than logically driven. And eventually, chronic fatigue and clinical depression and PTSD set in. Now, as we've been looking at this idea of a battle between good and evil, 
you can start to more easily see why Lucifer would want a population to be suffering from all those things. Because if you're emotionally driven, logic has been thrown out, and now you can be manipulated. We heard about a gentleman uh, named Bob Woodward some this week. Well, someone that worked closely with him, Carl Bernstein, broke the story in 1977 for Rolling Stone magazine. It's a 1977 article entitled, The CIA and the Media. Bernstein said in the article that the CIA had secretly bankrolled numerous foreign press services, periodicals, and newspapers, both English and foreign language, which provided excellent cover for CIA operatives. He goes on to say, this was the workings of something called Operation Mockingbird, in which many journalists included Pulitzer Prize winners. They joined the CIA's payroll, writing fake stories to disseminate the agency's agitprop and providing intelligence. Goes on to say, other journalists were threatened and blackmailed into cooperating with Mockingbird, and many were given falsified or fabricated information about their actions in order to engender their support. Now, if you're really trying, if this book is really about a war between good and evil, and you understand, if you're Lucifer, this is the last scenes in the drama, how do I get people ready for that? Because that says Lucifer is coming as Christ. That is the next grand event in earth's history. Everyone will think it's Jesus, yet it will be the grand switcheroo and it will be Lucifer according to scripture. How do you get people ready for that? Where they can be easily manipulated. Well, you start to manipulate that idea by beholding we become changed. And the things we watch and see every single day, if they just do one thing, make us afraid, then we can more easily be manipulated. And so how is that happening today? Well, you just saw how inner workings started that operation. How do you start to manipulate the American public? And I, I talk, I know a lot about the American public and not about other countries. And I'll tell you why that, that is. Two reasons. One, prophetically, as we go, the whole world goes. And I believe as the church, and based on my travels around the world, as the North American Seventh-day Adventist church goes and Protestantism goes, so goes the world. We are the leaders. As I write these messages, I'm thinking, you're a leader. You're a leader. Everyone in here has some form of leadership. There are people that you owe the opportunity to to share what you understand. And for a long time, we practiced that in our media. So there was something called the Fairness Doctrine. It's called the Fairness Doctrine of the United States Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, introduced in 1949... It was a policy that required the holders of broadcast licenses to both present controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that was, in the FCC's view, honest, equitable, and balanced. Now that sounds pretty good, honestly. You say your piece, I'll say my piece. In fact, that's how the war in heaven started. God could have said, Lucifer, don't say anything like that. That's not true. But instead, we don't know for how many eons 
He said, Lucifer, you get your time, I'll get my time. Share your side of the story, I'll share my side. And ultimately, people will have to make a decision. So that's kind of what this fairness doctrine was. Give both sides the ability to share their case and let the viewer decide what they believe. The FCC eliminated that policy in 1987 and removed the rule that implemented the policy from the Federal Register in 2011. Why do I share things like this with you? If you don't read this book in the context of current events, it will not make sense. It will sound like just ideas and theories that may or may not have some application in the far distant future. But instead, if you say, okay, there's a war, two individuals, once best friends, vying for my allegiance. Jesus presents his side of the case both here and through our lives. Lucifer uses his mediums, or media, plural. And so he has a way in which he must disseminate his doctrine. That's why I think in all Hollywood films, there's one key thing that must get into the film. People live after they die. It's like this one deal. I'll give you $200 million, but Don, one ingredient. Make sure somewhere in this film, people understand death is not death. Resonate with the beautiful doctrine of the serpent. You're not going to die. So that's, that's the one ingredient. So we have these agendas. And so here in this one, if you look at the dates of these things, you start to see prophetically things really started to deteriorate in this country when this doctrine was repealed. Because you have agencies rise up to be fair and balanced as soon as this disappears. Because now we don't have to tell the other side of the equation. In fact, we can just tell our opinion of the situation. We don't even have to quote the president accurately. We can just tell you what we think he meant by the words he might or might not have said. And then depending on which channel you watch or who's your favorite host, we will tell you what reality is. And then when you go to your Thanksgiving dinner, you will tell people vehemently and passionately and arguing, that's not true. Haven't you seen the news? Right? Does anybody relate with this? This is the moment we find ourselves in. And it's interesting that there were attempts to keep bringing this back, but they kept getting struck down. We don't want this fairness doctrine anymore. Let the nation become polarized. Turn with me in your Bibles. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. And we see something pretty clear here about this idea of love and war, love and hate, good and evil. Because if you notice, I'm not going to name any names. Like I said, I, I see the landmines. <laughs> That's very difficult. But there are words that we know that are now triggers for us. 
where we just, we almost are categorizing these things like the Pharisees of old. Oh, you say that word in your vocabulary. I know what camp you're in. And, and it's like we're almost being forced into, there's only two camps. When Jesus came on the scene, that's what people told him. Pharisee or Sadducee, which you're going to be? And Jesus says, nope. I'll take option three, please. So what does this verse say? Uh, my version here says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then verse 19 is beautiful. We love him because he first loved us. Unless we understand daily this story, Jesus did not have to come and create this planet. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to. He didn't have to bring more citizens into the heavenly realms, but he said, nope, I want mankind in this story. He didn't have to bring you individually into the story, but he did. And so knowing all that, you have to say, I'm here for a purpose. God has something for me in my life that he did not relegate to someone else or I would not be needed. And so if we understand that idea of love each and every day, God loves me. I know this because he took the time and the energy to create me. He's taken the efforts to sustain me in life for some reason. And not only that, he knows that there's been some nastiness in my life that I can barely forgive myself for. And yet he said, I forgive you and I'm gonna lay down my life for you. And so by knowing that, by going through that in our morning routine, our midday routine and our evening routine, we can say, God loves me. I don't have to be afraid of what people want me to be afraid of. He's, he started my story. He saved me from the tragic end of what my story should be. And he's actually told me there's a better story ahead for me. So it's understanding that. Then you're not afraid. Then you start to land in the land of logic, which few of us venture into that paradise anymore. And we start to say, wait a second, I don't have to be afraid. I'm not even sure you're telling me the truth. Because scripture says, and we can use a filter to start to do that, that's not motivated by money. I mean, one fascinating thing recently I saw, CNN is terrified Donald Trump will lose the election. Does that not just sound ironic? Because of how much money they believe he individually has made them. I don't even know what world we live in. I, I don't. It, it's like, well, the love of money, I get it. So if we go through this idea, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we can know, but God loves me because he told me he did. He, he represented it in a way that you can't do by proxy. He actually came down and became one of us. He is one of us in the heavens now. And that's my down payment that I have a future. It's by knowing that that we can live with verses like Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1 and 2. I want to read this from the New International Version because I think it says it in a very understandable way. Most versions describe it, cast your bread on many waters. What is it really meaning? Here's, the, here's where we go. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. What a, what a fascinating investing principle. What's our common one? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. 
the wisest man said it a little differently. How about Isaiah 43.1? It says, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. But if you are afraid, I want you to go with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you find yourself afraid, and if you want to just see what fear feels like, there's a few channels I could tell you to turn on, and uh, you'll get some fear into your life pretty quickly. A few people you could follow on social media. 1 Kings chapter 19. The Bible does not condemn us if we're afraid. That's good news. And so we read a story here in 1 Kings 19. The precursor is this. There's been a famine in the land. People have been afraid. People were sick of religion. They were confused by religion. And God says to Elijah, Elijah, sometimes you have to face a crisis. And so here's what we're going to do. Go to Mount Carmel. You remember this story as kids. Go to Mount Carmel. Bring all the prophets of Baal. There's going to be this showdown. Everyone will be watching around the surrounding hills. And I'm going to show up. That was it. So Elijah goes. The prophets of Baal are cutting themselves. They're doing all these things. Fire does not consume their sacrifice. Elijah begins to taunt and he says, well, maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. I mean, it's a very controversial moment. He ends up pouring water on his sacrifice. He's like, waterlog this thing. And literally, we're told, fire came down from heaven, ate up the rocks, the sacrifice, and everything else. It's this high day. The God of Israel is back. Elijah is somehow given this supernatural ability, uh, like a superhero, where he begins to run in the rain faster than the horses can run. He leads the king all the way back to the city. Man, that story is amazing. And then Ahab is so excited to tell his beautiful wife, Jezebel, you won't believe what happened on Carmel today. And she says, okay, well, let me tell you about what happened on Carmel today. Verse 2 of chapter 19. Let the gods do to me and more. If I do not make the life of Elijah as one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And Elijah hears this. This woman's going to kill me. And he's terrified. I'm going to die. After all this, I'm going to die. So what does it say he does? When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. He went a day's journey into the wilderness, verse 4, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. He prayed that he might die. Lord, I just want to die. I know I've been through some great times in life. That woman is crazy and she's going to kill me. I just want to die. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Verse 5, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, I think some virgins say juniper, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And this is why it's important to know our Bibles, because the next verse 7 says, And the angel of the Lord, what does it say? Came back the second time. Throughout the Old Testament, as we describe the angel of the Lord, this is Michael, who we also know as Jesus. Imagine that. 
to not think that he has forgotten you when you are headed into the wilderness to either become suicidal or find a way to die. He comes there and he says, hey, eat something, go to sleep. Okay, wakes him up again and he eats again. And he gets enough strength because he's heading into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to the same mountain where this same being, Michael, who we know is Jesus today, met with Moses on Sinai. On Jabal al-Musa, I think it's called. And, and Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And this is where all these things start to happen, all these weather-related events to get his attention, to show him, Elijah, I'm not in the noise. If you can remember nothing else that I say, it's this. God is not in the noise. And as much as I could shout and hoot and holler, as much as your favorite personality on TV or social media can make you feel so passionate, God is not in the noise. And he describes to Elijah, here is where I am. And they begin to have this conversation at the edge of this cave. He tells him, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 people. Don't think you're the only one. And he's in this, this whisper. When all the noise is gone, the whirlwind is passed, he's in this whisper where it's only him and God. And I think this is probably the biggest thing we can take away from this idea today where we, we have documented evidence we're being manipulated. That is factual. I hope you don't take my word for it. I can give you my notes or just start to look. How are we being manipulated? The manipulation has ramped up in the last decade and you see the country being ripped apart in the last decade. As soon as the news was no longer the news and the men that for generations we respected to turn on the evening news, this individual will tell me the sides of the issue and I will go away and I will make an educated decision. Those days are gone. So now we know we're in a moment of manipulation. We know whose side of the war it's coming from. We know what it does to us physiologically and we know from this story with Elijah that God says, I'm not in all the noise. If you want to hear me, you've got to listen very carefully. And I think this requires us to go either to our space where there's no noise, where if you're like me, I, I will confess, I am an addict, addict to my tel telephone. <laughs> my cell phone has a magnet in it that is so strong that I can find it anywhere in my life. And yet I hope I'm smart enough to know I'm addicted to this device. I literally pick it up so many times, I'm like, what? I don't need this. And in a world of all this noise, God is saying, hey, I just need your attention. I'm not in the noise, but I gotta, I gotta have some time with you. We've got to talk, as he did with Elijah in this story. And they begin to dialogue. And Elijah says things because he's depressed that are exaggerative and that are not true. And God says, hold on now. You're not the only one. There's a lot more people. And they begin to talk. You know, Ellen White describes something. She says, we have nothing to fear for the future. We could stop there. That'd be pretty good. 
But, but she does give a caveat of, of why we should be afraid. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. If you start to change how you think God led you, those memories become negative. And in Deuteronomy 31.8, God says, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You think of all these stories in the Bible where people come to a point where they are totally convinced this is it. This is the end. There's the Egyptian army. There's the Red Sea. There's no way out. And the Lord says, hey, I'm going to actually send you right across the ocean there. David and Goliath, David's a dead man. And God says, nope, for a long time I've been preparing David. We're going to do some guiding of this projectile today. You see all these stories that remind us in a moment when we feel like there is no way out, this is pretty much in this world today our only reminder. There is hope. This story gets better day by day, even though God goes with us through some of these trials. So let's not negate that. But James tells us these trials are for our own good. I told a friend yesterday, I said, Scripture says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing or trying of your faith produces patience. I said, but I think another way you could say it is, God will allow us to go through hell to understand this better way of life he has for us. And, and I think it's to help the love of this world dissipate. I think that's a big lesson we may be in right now. Where do we see our future? In the one described here that sounds pretty good or in the one that we're fighting for to hold on to these ideas that may not be the reality much longer. And I think that's for us to hold on to this and believe it by faith and not just to hold on to it privately and personally, but to go share that with others. And if you don't feel like you have that, go back to the source and say, God, I'm in the noise. It is noisy. I need to hear your voice. I need some clarity in my life so that I'm not afraid of tomorrow. And if there's one promise in here, it's I will give you that peace. That's my prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.